imagine that on a summer day in 1951, somewhere in Alaska, in a small town, a few hundred people, let's say, two FBI agents show up at your door. Gossip in your town is normal, and the nosy wife of Grizzly Adams, two cabins down, is already staring from the porch. I suppose you might say, what can I do for you fellas? May we come in, they would probably say, though if this were a Hollywood movie, they might say, do you want to help us save the world from the Russians? Coffee is served. They say, we can't tell you exactly what you'll be asked to do, but if you want to be a true American patriot, we think you'll want to help us out. The FBI, you say? What are you big city boys doing out here? The big city being Anchorage. We're looking for volunteers for a new program. Look, I don't mean to be difficult, you'd say, but can you be any more specific? No, the FBI agents say. Well, why me? And they say, probably in unison, you fit the profile. After some prodding, the profile is revealed to be someone articulate, skilled, able-bodied, and with a good knowledge of his little patch of Alaska. A criminal background check has already been done on you, without your knowledge. The actual mission remains wholly unrevealed. You ask, so what should I do? They say, come to Anchorage in ten days, and if anyone asks why we were here, Tell them that we were asking about someone you used to work with or someone you knew in the war. Under no circumstances should you talk about this to anyone. In ten days, you go to the FBI office in Anchorage. You're asked more questions and told that you're going to become an undercover informant in a new program. You'll be helping Uncle Sam and... That's about all you're told. Except that if you accept the job, you will be flown to Washington, D.C. for six weeks of training, which you'll also have to keep a secret from everyone you know. You're told to make arrangements with your family and your place of employment, whatever that might be, without mentioning any of what very little you know. Then, when a date is set, it's back to Anchorage, this time, an agent drives you to Elmendorf Air Force Base for a complete medical exam. Then, assuming you pass, and not all recruits did, with that unpleasantness out of the way, you begin your trip by plane to Seattle, Omaha, Detroit, and Washington, D.C. In the first hour of the first day of training, you are finally told exactly what it is you've gotten yourself into. If or when the Soviet Union invades Alaska, you will not evacuate. Instead, you'll stay behind, live under the occupation, and pass information on the Russians back to the US. You will learn secret codes Invisible ink, sabotage, and survival. 
Though the word was never used by the FBI, Air Force, or CIA, you have just become a Cold War spy. Left Behind, the Alaskan Stay Behind Agents of World War III, this time on the Cold War Vault. The story of the Alaskan stay-behind agents, now most commonly known as Operation Washtub, which was the Air Force's codeword for it, was first told in more than 2,000 pages of FBI documents declassified in the late 1990s. The FBI, incidentally, referred to it as the STAGE program. CIA documents were approved for release in 2004. Despite this, the story didn't enter the realm of public fascination until 700 more pages were declassified in 2014 by the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. The story made the rounds on the internet, mostly resulting in cut-and-paste articles to drive clicks with no additional research. The story made a blip and vanished. I've combed through this nearly 3,000-page trove to tell a deeper, more complete, and, I hope, more nuanced story than what emerged in 2014, and touch on some of the details that didn't make the internet rounds. I've read the memos so that you don't have to, but if you have some time on your hands and enjoy declassified documents, I will put a link in the show notes. As the Cold War was heating up, U.S. military planners started to realize that a very real vector for a military invasion would be through Alaska. Alaska was only a territory in the 1950s, not gaining statehood until 1959. The territory had also been part of Tsarist Imperial Russia, and so these two things, a Russian geopolitical heritage and the legal standing of a territory as opposed to a full state, meant that Alaska was uniquely positioned to be invaded and occupied by Cold War adversaries. And this was a threat that the U.S. Air Force thought needed urgent attention. The idea began to take shape on the 20th of January, 1950, when the Air Force approached the CIA and suggested that the Alaska Command was of the opinion that a stay-behind network should be organized in the event of a Soviet invasion. Stay-behind agents do what the name suggests. They stay behind during an enemy invasion and allow themselves to be overrun. Then, from inside the occupied territory, they can do anything from report on enemy movements to sabotage and raising holy hell. 
A separate stay-behind unit trained in Escape and Evasion, or E&E. They would help in exfiltrating downed pilots and other agents. A formal request for the CIA to get involved with the planning was drawn up and passed up the chain of command to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That eventually led to a memo from Colonel Preston Quarterman of the U.S. Army Signal Corps in March 1950 that formalized CIA involvement and let the agency coordinate with the FBI. This was important because even though Alaska was a territory, not a state, it was still outside of the CIA's jurisdiction, which is essentially everywhere on Earth that isn't the United States. Even so, the documents I pulled on Operation Washtub from the CIA Crest database tell an interesting and instructive story about the way that the agency operated in those years, and probably does to this day. The CIA offered to provide material support to the FBI in setting up the new program, but deferred to the FBI's leadership because of issues of jurisdiction. But in a memo from the Assistant Director of Operations, CIA, point three reads, while it is true that CIA does not have formal authority to conduct operations in the United States or its territories, including Alaska, I do not believe that this is wholly an internal FBI Air Force matter. A large paragraph is then redacted, probably outlining the specific ways that the CIA could conduct operations domestically in support of the Stay Behind Network, particularly in wartime. While the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations, the OSI, and the FBI would formally helm the program, the CIA was never far from their thoughts, and there were repeated efforts to resist the agency's intrusion. In an FBI memo weighing the pros and cons of partnering with OSI to run the program, one point reads, the principal advantage to the FBI in assuming joint responsibility in these programs is that it will preclude any other intelligence agency, such as CIA, getting into the intelligence field in Alaska. So, what exactly would the Stay Behind program look like? Well, the formal memo requesting the formation of the Stay Behind organization proposed a plan to select, train, and equip agents who were to be longtime residents of their patches of surveillance and who would have no prior military record, enabling them to live unnoticed by the presumed Soviet occupiers. The Bureau walked back this requirement later in the planning stages when the special agent in charge in Anchorage suggested, quote, a loss of ex-servicemen would probably deprive the program of some of its best material. Before recruitment of agents could begin, the FBI had involved discussions of the type of people that might, in their words, have long-range survivability. 
It was noted by the director of the FBI that in the Baltic states and Poland, the Soviets had singled out just about any middle-class or mildly skilled person for arrest and deportation. Government officials and civil servants, staff members of the Red Cross, religious people, clergymen, and their secretaries, aristocrats, landowners, wealthy merchants, not-so-wealthy merchants, bankers, industrialists, hotel and restaurant proprietors, university professors, and elementary school teachers, doctors, engineers, employees of the forestry service, farmers, skilled workmen, trade union officials, students, Trotskyites, anarchists, and fallen communists were arrested and deported. This suggested to the FBI that the only people left in Alaska after a Soviet occupation would be unskilled or very slightly skilled workers. More specifically, the FBI directed that the agents should be Alaskan residents with an established means of livelihood and a logical reason for being placed where they intended to operate. Interestingly, there was a specific prohibition on recruitment from native groups because, as the FBI put it, they had a basic unreliability. It was thought that because of their desire to simply survive, they would gladly accept any occupying government. And, of course, the presumption of rampant alcoholism. When it came to the ideal candidate for recruits, the FBI actually got very specific. Author and historian Vince Houghton covers this briefly in his book, Nuking the Moon. He delivers the wish list with all of the sarcasm and incredulity that it deserves. I can't take credit if the following character sketch amuses you. Thank the FBI. The ideal stay-behind agent would have only one arm, so as to be useless to the Soviets as forced labor. He would be a professional photographer in Anchorage, an amateur radio operator, a licensed hunting guide, a survivalist, a small aircraft pilot, intelligent, particularly crafty, and possessed of sufficient physical courage to offer to guide a party to hunt Kodiak bear with only a bow and arrow. A weapon, Vince Houghton points out, that would be very difficult to use with only one arm. Though the FBI did settle for less than their perfect agent, the standards for reliability were still high Plenty of prospects were rejected before they even knew they had been considered. In one case, a man was rejected for being notoriously boastful. The report from the special agent in charge in Anchorage reads, In addition, it was reported that he was extremely talkative. He likes to impress people with his importance by talking, and it was suggested that he not be contacted regarding any confidential matter for this reason. 
In another case, a recruit was rejected because he was the brother of someone associated with a woman who appeared to be connected with narcotics traffic in Fairbanks and was a known prostitute. Still, another man was rejected when it came to the Bureau's attention that he was dead. Once the recruits, one-armed bear hunters or otherwise, were identified and passed their initial background checks, they were to be trained individually so that none of them knew the others. The training would include the usual spycraft that the CIA and FBI offered their operatives, as well as Arctic survival, airdrop and pickup techniques, scouting, patrolling, map reading, sketching, and parachuting. They would be real backwoods renaissance spies. When the agents were brought to Washington, D.C. for training, the course began with a one-hour indoctrination presentation. During this, they were finally given the complete purpose of the stay-behind program. It was never actually confirmed that there would be a network or whether the agent in question would be a lone operator. During the initial indoctrination, the agents were to be convinced of their patriotic obligation to the country and the necessity of the task. Along with this was a presentation on the military's commitment to hold Alaska in the event of a conflict, maybe to assuage any second thoughts the recruits might have. Ten hours of training in codes for radio correspondence was given, along with eight hours of secret writing and written codes. This included the very spy-crafty subjects of secret inks, how to manufacture secret ink, and the use of reagents to expose secret ink. An eight-hour unit called Deception and Security gave agents necessary information on inventing and maintaining cover stories and pretexts. The unit taught methods of communicating whether an agent had been compromised and forced to work as a double agent, methods of concealing secret codes, maps, and supplies, and methods of destroying equipment used for espionage. Among the tips were, don't burn your cash at night. Finally, 10 hours were devoted to instruction on how to recruit sub-agents and informants and how to make sure they kept their mouths shut about the whole operation. A snapshot of both the training and the general quality of the recruits that did end up in the program shows up in an FBI memo giving the results of cryptographic training in the case of one man whose name remains secret to this day. In true Hollywood spycraft fashion, the stay-behinds were instructed in cipher techniques, including one-time pads, which were collections of random characters to be used only once, and open codes, 
Open codes were words with double meanings that can be slipped into written communication or conversation. Weather, as in what's the weather, means what are my instructions. Ants, bears, and coyotes meant plans A, B, and C. Saws were a request for medicine. Axes were a need for more men. And nails meant food. Shoes, as you might expect, meant that the agent was being forced to move. In the event that the one-time pads were unavailable, the 1951 edition of Popular Libraries Home Guide to Repair, Upkeep, and Remodeling could be used to cipher and decipher messages, along with several other books. I have a copy on the way to me now as a bit of Cold War spycraft memorabilia, so keep a lookout on Facebook and ColdWarVault.com in the next few days. I will post some images and samples of how they were used to code messages. An unnamed stay-behind recruit, the subject of the memo, was asked to memorize the cryptographic methods and codes by practicing them every day. He was given three and a half hours of cipher training and five hours of crypto analysis. The Bureau was not impressed. The assessment reads, quote, The amount of training thus far given him is not adequate. He is not a very adept pupil, being handicapped by what appears to be low general intelligence and poor reading and writing capacity. It is doubtful whether this man will ever be proficient in the use of secure ciphers. Well, to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, you stay behind with the agents you have, not the agents you want or might wish to have. Suggestions were made to help this poor doofus along. An extra eight hours of training by the crypto unit, supervised practice, and all of the communication sent to him should be in the simplest possible language. As the memo says, quote, he exhibits poor ability to place together the plaintext of communications after the cipher has been stripped off. To that end, it was suggested that X's be placed where spaces would go to help him with his reading difficulties. Finally, it was recommended that two copies of Home Guide to Repair, Upkeep, and Remodeling be sent to Alaska, presumably to ensure against loss of one of the stay-behind's vital cryptographic mechanisms. The general structure of the organization would be a kind of pyramid scheme, or multi-level marketing scheme, I guess, to be kind. For every 5,000 people in the population, there would be a principal agent in charge of five or six sub-agents, who would be charged with developing their own confidential informants after an invasion. Anchorage is the example given with a population of 40,000, eight principals and 40 agents. 
There's a great deal of emphasis placed on training the agents individually to prevent any of them from recognizing the others, ensuring a kind of institutional security. But with so many principals and agents, the cost and time commitment was onerous. When the training school was established, it was almost immediately suggested that multiple schools should be opened so that men from the same Alaskan cities could be trained at the same time without ever seeing each other. This was never accomplished. Payment was another sticking point in the early planning phase. It was obvious to the FBI and any other agency involved that U.S. cash would be worthless after an invasion. Or, more precisely, it would be confiscated by the Soviets and used for their own purposes. The FBI suggested that the annual stipends to the agents in peacetime and any period of active duty should be made in the form of deposits in bank accounts in the lower 48. Payment in checks was ruled out because the FBI thought, and probably rightly so, that they would be noticed immediately in small communities. In other words, small-town gossip about the mystery checks would expose the agents. During training, the agents were paid as confidential informants, which was something the FBI had budgeted and planned for. In true bureaucratic style, hundreds of pages of the FBI data dump deal with just the wrangling of bureau officials about how much to pay the stay-behind agents in training for travel to and from Washington, D.C., the weekly amount during the six weeks of training, and, of course, the perpetually contested per diem. Eventually, the agents were paid $3,000 annually in peacetime, with that amount to double after an invasion. The Anchorage office of the FBI offered thumbnail sketches of seven men to be the first agents. When the memo with their names and short biographies was sent to Washington, the men mentioned were unaware that they were about to be approached and recruited by the FBI. Frank B. Moore was a 45-year-old carpenter and licensed hunting guide known to the personnel of the Anchorage office. The memo says that there was nothing derogatory in his record, and that was all the recommendation he needed. Dr. Howard Romig was born in Alaska and was a licensed guide with a plane. A plane was a major bonus in the eyes of the Bureau. He was known to have a, quote, temperament and desire of outdoor life. Antonio Paulette was born in Italy in 1881, but had become a resident of Nome during a turn-of-the-century gold rush. At the time he was approached, he ran a Native American craft shop. Sam Romack was a real character. He was born in Dalmatia in 1892 and came to Alaska in 1922. 
He was a bootlegger during Prohibition and was pro-Nazi during World War II. I suppose if you need someone to oppose the Soviets in an invasion, a Nazi sympathizer would be a fine choice. He owned and operated a bar and hotel in Seward. Joe Danich was a Yugoslavian native, but had been in the U.S. from the age of two. He had been a coal miner and came to own the only hotel and bar in Girdwood. He also owned a gold mine that hadn't paid out. He had been arrested in 1938, but that didn't affect his recruitment. It was for vagrancy in Valdez. He paid a fine of $100, which is about $2,000 in today's money, so don't mess with Valdez. By January of 1951, 101 people had been considered by the FBI as stay-behind agents, and 14 had been eliminated because of information gleaned from interviews during background checks. Those who had been accepted began their individual pilgrimages to Washington, D.C. for training. The training regime in the FBI documents remains remarkably unredacted. I've mentioned some of the course material before. The only exception to this is the means of contacting sub-agents and informants, meaning that similar methods are probably used by the FBI to this day, which is interesting in itself. Training began with a unit on deception and security. This reinforced the need for complete secrecy and offered some ideas on what to tell wives and relatives on the return to Alaska. It also clarified what the agents were to do if invasion was imminent or when the occupation began. Cover stories were developed and the basics of covert surveillance were addressed. The next training section was Selection and Training of Sub-Agents and Informants, which was a particularly tricky subject, given that the secrecy of the entire operation would be handed over to individual agents in the field in time of national emergency. There was a lot of emphasis on trustworthiness and intelligence in recruiting sub-agents with a very clear directive to have any potential sub-agent or informant cleared with the FBI before any approach was made. Defensive tactics came next with a crash course from the FBI's own training pamphlet titled Disarming Methods. This included methods for disarming handguns, rifles, and a section called Suggestions on the Use of a Knife. That unit of instruction advised the knife-wielding agent on how to stab a variety of arteries, the kidneys, the liver, the spleen, and how to cut the windpipe to prevent an outcry. In reading the outline for the course, I have to imagine that if the recruits hadn't yet realized what they'd gotten themselves into, this would have surely made it uncomfortably clear. A few other courses revealed in the 2014 declassification 
included 20 hours of guerrilla techniques and close combat, 20 hours of demolition techniques, and 20 hours of surreptitious photography. By the summer of 1951, the plan to cache supplies around Alaska had been fast-tracked for fear that the weather would force a delay in caching until summer of 1952. In a real archival gem, a list of items that would be buried in stay-behind caches reveals both the nature of life under enemy occupation and some of the expectations the program had for its stay-behind agents. In the early 1950s, preservation methods for the caches were still in an experimental phase, but plastic dipping of individual items showed the most promise. These dipped items were put into waterproof containers, usually themselves galvanized drums. Among many other things, agents could expect to find the following. Rescue equipment, folding kayak with oars and sail, rubber boat, flares, signaling mirror, cloth maps, paper maps, a wristwatch of the Ingersoll type, and a Mae West-style life jacket, so named for reasons of breast size. Medical supplies, antibiotics, APC tablets, that's aspirin, phenocetin, and caffeine for pain and fever, more antibiotics, antacids, vitamins, benzedrine and dexedrine, when one just isn't enough, and morphine, for when you've had too much dexedrine. Food. Pemmican, the original North American survival food. Dry rice, canned meat, chocolate, cigarettes, and a hearty supply of beer, whiskey, and gin to go with the bennies, the dexies, and the morphine. Weapons, revolver, semi-auto pistol, submachine gun, rifle, grenades, C4 explosive, TNT for good measure, a garroting device, a commando knife, a hunting knife, and a blackjack. Barter items, watches, fountain pens, costume jewelry, cigarette lighters, both Zippo and Ronson brands, and $500 in gold. By 1952, agents had been trained in clandestine radio communication. There was some delay in this part of the program due to a disagreement over what brand of ham radio to use. Whatever was eventually decided remains classified. Practice Morse code keys were distributed to the newly trained agents before the radios were actually deployed. Apparently, the new agents were particularly interested in becoming proficient amateur radio operators. So the new ham radios were sent to Anchorage and distributed to the agents to be installed covertly in or around their homes. A call sign sheet was distributed with 52 three-letter codes. The instructions to the agents were that the first call sign on the list, 
which in the FBI's example is ABA, would be used first, during the first week of the operation, and be changed on the first Sunday at midnight. Then, the next call sign on the list would come into play and be changed every Sunday at midnight. The agent's controller would start from the bottom of the list and reverse the letters. At the scheduled time, the agent would put his radio on the agreed frequency. Then, for a minute, control would send groupings of the letter V, followed by the call sign and the letter K, which is a turnover prosign, which basically means, I'm done, over to you. Here's what it would actually sound like to get a very, very welcome contact from the United States in occupied Alaska. The agent would respond with a signal report, indicating with a number whether control was unreadable, barely readable, readable with difficulty, readable with no difficulty, or perfectly readable. Things get a little more convoluted from there. And it really shows how much the OSI and FBI expected from these stay-behind agents, some of whom had never used radio equipment before. After the signal report, the agent would respond with a QRU, which meant he didn't have radio traffic, or a QTC, which meant that he did. That first response from the agent in occupied Alaska would sound like this. You're about to hear, I'm here, this week's call sign is ABA, you are readable with no difficulty, and I have a message for you. The controller would reply with a signal report and a K, which again meant go ahead if there was a message to be transmitted. So QSA 4K, SK meant end of communication if there was no traffic. Then the agent would respond with QSY 12 and change to frequency 12, which was 14092 kilohertz or whatever prearranged frequency was represented by 12. The channel numbers were randomly selected. At this point, I am duty-bound to play this clip from 1977's Smokey and the Bandit. If I say go to channel 21, forget it, we ain't going to 21, we're going to 19. 21 is 19? 21 is All right, if I say go to channel 6, six? forget it, we no, go to 3. I don't go to 6, I go to 3. Good. We go to 3. Perfect. Now if I say go to channel 2, we're going to go to channel 1. Two is one. See, that'll confuse everybody. That'll confuse. <laughs> the radio procedure section of the training materials ends with this quote. It is imperative that you learn your procedure thoroughly in order that you spend as little time on the air as possible. No traffic on either station should take more than one minute. All transmissions must be kept to an absolute minimum in order that a fix cannot be made on your station thus disclosing your location and endangering your life.
It soon became clear that the stay-behind agent program had outgrown the Anchorage field office. Not because the office couldn't handle managing the program, but because it became increasingly uncertain if all of the files relating to the network could be destroyed in time, in the event of a Soviet invasion. Stripped down, records of the agents were kept in a single folder, and everything else was sent to Washington, D.C. It was during this shift that the FBI also began jockeying for a more optimal position of responsibility or debating withdrawing from the program altogether, depending on whose memo you read. The Bureau had initially taken primary responsibility for running the Stay Behind Agent program and also took on the responsibility of assisting in the Escape and Evasion program, which would be a strictly military program in wartime. In general, the FBI referred to itself as an associate principal in both programs. Doubts about the wisdom of that emerged at a meeting of the Executive Conference of the FBI in August 1951. There was some hesitation about the role and responsibility of the FBI after recruiting and training, with the general tone summed up as, in the event of war and invasion, the Bureau would be blamed because it had primary responsibility for intelligence in Alaska. But when it suggested that the whole program be handed over to some branch of military intelligence, namely the Office of Special Investigations, the conference put their collective feet down. In view of the hard work that had been done and the money and time already spent, no other agency should come in and take credit. So, normal institutional territorialism. Whatever arguments were afoot in the hierarchy of the FBI, nothing could trump the final word of J. Edgar Hoover. In a handwritten marginal comment on a memo on the 6th of September, 1951, Hoover wrote, quote, If a crisis arose, we would be in the midst of another Pearl Harbor and get part of the blame. Get out at once. And the FBI did. By the end of that month, the Bureau's role in the Alaskan Stay Behind program had been reduced to doing background checks on new recruits. It no longer recruited, trained, equipped, or controlled Stay Behind agents in the field. But that's not to say the program ended. Far from it. It continued into 1959, the year that Alaska became a state. The program had become relatively expensive with such an extensive network of agents, and it had become uncertain whether they would serve the purpose that had been designed for them in 1951. For so many reasons that I talk about here on the Cold War Vault, war simply looked different by 1959. The advent of the intercontinental ballistic missile and the Intercontinental Strategic Bomber Force made a World War II-style conventional invasion far less likely, at least in North America. At the end of the program, the Air Force maintained the caches intended for the stay-behinds. They were converted for use by downed aircraft. 
But by 1961, with most of the survival stocks reaching the end of their shelf life and no desire to spend the money to restock them, they were abandoned. A 1988 article claimed that they were eventually looted by trappers and other backwoodsmen. In 1989, the Army Corps of Engineers mounted an effort to find the caches, but it seems they had long been lost to time and bears. The documents that helped to inform this story are almost 70 years old. No one mentioned in those pages is alive today. From the cipher-challenged recruit to J. Edgar Hoover himself. But the vast majority of their names remain redacted. From a historian's point of view, this is always frustrating. But from a storyteller's point of view, it's worse because their stories deserve to be told and their legacies remembered. Whether the stay-behind agents knew it or not, they had volunteered for a wartime job with a particularly short lifespan, given how invading Soviet forces tended to treat underground resistance movements. These men nearly all of whom remain nameless to the people who would try to tell their stories, were cold warriors who were ready to do what they could, even die, to defend their towns, the territory of Alaska, and the United States in one of the most dangerous decades in history. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Dr. DJ Kinney. That's me. Music you've heard is from Blue Dot Sessions. Visit coldwarvault.com for show notes, images, and links. You can like and follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault. And listen and subscribe anywhere you get your favorite podcasts, especially Apple Podcasts, that really helps the show to grow. Don't get left behind when the invasion comes. See you next time.